Father, we just come before you and um, we lift up Peter and Rebecca to you. Father, we pray that you would just hold them in your arms this morning. I'm so thankful, God, that in the city they have a church family that has just come around them and loved on them and cared for them and brought them into their own families and into their own homes. And so, God, this morning, I, I just pray especially that you'd be with them. I imagine they're gathering with their church fam. And so, God, would you bless that time? I pray, Lord, that, that uh, they'd be able to grieve and mourn and weep together and that they'd also be able to cling tightly to the, the hope of the gospel and the hope of eternal life that little Isabella has entered into. And Lord, we thank you for her life. We thank you, God, that you used her to teach us how to pray. And um, we're thankful for what she meant to, to Peter and Rebecca. And so, God, we just pray for your comfort, Lord, that you would, um, that you would be their peace, that you would be uh, their hope at this time, Lord. And we just remember them before you. And Father, as we, uh, as we come to your word this morning, Lord, I just, my prayer has been that we wouldn't just accumulate knowledge today, God, but that we would have heart transformation, that in our hearts we would, we would grow to know your love and your character and your grace, that we would experience the reality of your presence, that your Holy Spirit would just make Jesus known to us this morning. And so, Father, we just we, we just invite you to move upon our hearts. We invite your spirit to speak to us today. And we commit this time to you now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Right on. Well, uh, last Sunday, we, we dove into uh, chapter 17 of Matthew here a little bit. We looked at the first eight verses uh, regarding the transfiguration, the story of Jesus' transfiguration. And so I just thought to really set the tone and help us get a handle on where this uh, text is about to go, that we'd start right back at the start of the chapter and quickly move through the first eight verses and then dive into the rest of it uh, and see where Matthew goes with this account of Jesus. I've titled this message, The King Comes Down. The King Comes Down. And it says in verse 1, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became white as light. Uh, transfiguration. The, the Greek word is metamorpho. We, we get our English word metamorphosis. Uh, from that idea. From that Greek word. It's that same word that describes a caterpillar in a cocoon. We talked about that a little bit last week. And Jesus was transfigured. He changed form in front of the eyes of his disciples, and he began to emanate this light. Light was coming out of him. His face shone. His, his clothes became like transparent and like light coming out of them. And uh, it wasn't that... Th the beauty of this story was this, is that it's not that Jesus was reflecting something. It's not like, you know... Moses, when he met the Lord on top of Mount Sinai and came down and there was this reflection upon his face of the glory of God. No, Jesus was emanating light. It was coming out uh, from inside of him. And we talked about this idea that, that light can be a garment for righteousness. That's what the scripture tells us. In fact, the idea from Genesis really is this, is that, that, that Adam and Eve were clothed in light until they sinned. And so we see Jesus here as the light of the world. He is, he is emanating 
light. Uh, it is his garment of righteousness. And uh, it's just a kind of a neat thought to consider this idea that it's, that it's very probable that Adam and Eve were clothed in light. And when they sinned, the, the Hebrew expresses that idea, the original language, that their light went out. And they saw that they were naked. And so this idea tells us, um, you know, something pretty incredible about Jesus as he is transfigured before the eyes of his disciples. That they saw him in his glory, in his magnificence, in his perfect sinless, innocent uh, humanity was displayed before them. And that's actually the thing about the transfiguration that often that we miss. The transfiguration is actually not about Jesus' deity. It's about his perfect humanity. It's about his sinless nature. And on the, on the Mount of Transfiguration, what we see is the perfect humanity of Jesus glorified. It's, it comes out so that all can see it, that who are there and they see the glory of his humanity and his face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. And we talked about this idea last week that there was no shadow in him. There was no murkiness. There was no darkness, no blackness, uh, no shade in Jesus. He was God and he was perfectly man. And the glory of his perfect humanity was coming out of him. He, he, he was this, really he was this. Jesus was man as God always intended his creation to be. And so verse 3, Matthew tells us this, And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. I always want to laugh when I read that. Mark tells us that Peter was speaking out of his mind. He didn't know what to say, so he's just filling in the blanks. Verse 5, he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. So, yeah, Peter speaks up into this whole situation. Why don't I build three shelters? doesn't know what he's saying. We don't know what he was saying. And I had a conversation about that this week. We said, what, what was he talking about? I don't know. That's, I think that's part of the point. Nobody knows what Peter was talking about in building these tents. And so as he spoke up, God interrupted. The Father interrupted from heaven. And, and we read here that, that this bright cloud came upon the top of the mountain and a voice spoke from the cloud saying, this is my son, my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. The cloud was not simply a, a cloud. You know, I, I got here to the church this morning and was parking down below in it, and it, the sky just kind of opened up for me, and you could see all the blue in behind all the dark clouds. And I was just reminded, yeah, man, God, your sun is always shining behind all the clouds that there can be on this life sometimes. But this cloud that was on top of this mountain was not like the kind of cloud that's in the sky today, we, we read that it was a, a bright cloud and the implication is, is that it was the Shekinah glory of God. Just like that, that presence of God, that cloud of God's glory had come into the temple in the Old Testament and come upon Mount Sinai. It now descended upon this mountain with Jesus and Peter and James and John and Moses and Elijah there. And a voice spoke from the cloud. The the father's voice interrupts Peter, puts an end to all of Peter's blundering. And the, and the voice of the father announces, this is my beloved son 
with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And the father urges, the thing that the disciples were to, to get was that they were to listen to Jesus. That they weren't to put Moses and Elijah on the same plane as Jesus, but they were to listen to the beloved son. That listening to him is listening to God. That is one and the same thing, to listen to Jesus. And we're to listen to him. We're, we're to hear him when he teaches about God. He witnesses and he testifies to himself. His love, his work, his death. When he invites us to come and find rest, Jesus invites us to himself. When he commands, when he promises, the Father says, listen to the voice of my son Jesus. And so in the whole scene, we, we read that the disciples uh, fell to the ground at the voice of the Father. But then in verse 7, Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. And we talked about the idea that the voice of the Father, it'll knock you down, bring you down to reality and point out uh, that, that he is holy and you are sinful. And that the Father has sent Jesus and he meets us in the midst of this, uh, us being knocked down by the Father and he says, rise, rise and have no fear. Jesus, the word of God made flesh, he will pick you up. And, and we talked about this idea, if, if not for Jesus, what would we do? He, he is our salvation. And so when Jesus said, Arise and have no fear. We, we read that the disciples in verse 8 lifted up their eyes and they saw no one but Jesus only. They saw Jesus only, the key to this whole text. They didn't see Moses who represented the law. They didn't see Elijah any longer who represented the prophets. They saw Jesus only. No one else. Nothing beside him. Him alone. Only Jesus. And at that point, I think, as you consider the story of the transfiguration, uh, Jesus, right then and there, had he chosen to, could have just ascended right straight into heaven. He's the son of God, the son of man, perfect, without sin. Our sin, we know, separates us from the presence of God. Our sin separates us from heaven, but Jesus being innocent and holy and perfect and transfigured before the eyes of his disciples right then and there could have ascended straight into heaven. But instead of being caught up into heaven, Jesus made another choice. And that's what this text is really all about where we're going to go this morning. He made another choice. He came down from the mount. He came down from the mount of transfiguration into the valley of human experience into the valley of human condition, and he set his sight on another mount, Mount Calvary, where he would offer his life as a sacrifice for the sin of men and women so that one day, too, we would be glorified and be in the presence of our Father who is in heaven. And so the king comes down. Verse 9, we read this. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. I just love that picture of Jesus coming down from the mountain. You ever hiked to mountaintop? I was yapping with Annie Bronwyn this morning about hiking at Blackcomb. You know, I haven't been on top of too many mountains. I've hiked up a few, 
got to the top, like I've been, you know, up Psalms Point. Is that a mountain? I'm not sure. I've hiked some different mountains, but you know, uh, the thing about a mountain, what, it, what you'll notice and what you'll see is you look across and to the North Shore, you know, to Lions Bay and all those areas and the beauty of those mountains, there's no one living on top of the mountain. The, the, the mountaintop is not a place of habitation. Hey, Jesus, why don't I build three tents up here and we'll stay up here forever? Uh, it's not a place of habitation. The, the top of the mountain is a place where you go and you get perspective. You get vision. You, you have a lookout. You, you meet with God. But the truth is this, is that life happens in the valley. In the valley, life is cultivated and it grows and there's fruit and there's vegetables and there's experience and there's life. The river flows in the valley. And spiritually speaking, I think the mountain place, just as like we see in this story, is a, is a place where you meet with God. I've had some of those experiences in my life, mountaintop experiences, where we call, we call them, where, you know, you, you set a flagpole, you put the stake in the ground, you, you, you say, this is the GPS waypoint for my life here. I'm marking this. When I'm unsure, I'm going to remember what I experienced on top of the mountaintop with God. And it's going to help me have my bearings while I live life in the valley. There's nothing wrong with the valley. The valley is where life happens. And those spiritual mountaintop experiences are awesome because they help you maintain the course while you're living life in the valley. And the beauty of this story is this, is that Jesus makes a decision to leave the mountaintop. He does not have to. He makes a decision to come down into the valley of humanity. You know, I was thinking about that old saying. You know that saying that there's only, you know, two guarantees in life? Do you remember what they are? Death and taxes. <laughs> what do you think this story deals with? Death and taxes. It's interesting. Jesus comes down into the valley of life. As, as he comes down, he's going to deal with human suffering. He's going to deal with death. And he's going to deal with taxes, which is interesting. And so on the way down, as they're traveling, as they're making their way down, Jesus, Peter, James, and John, Jesus gives this instruction. Don't tell anybody what you saw on top of the mountain. Nobody's to know this until, until the Son of Man, until I have been raised from the dead. Now, I think about this, this whole experience of the transfiguration, then the question almost is, well, who was it for? Was it for Jesus' benefit? It's not for the benefit of Jesus. I really think that the transfiguration was for the benefit of Peter, James, and John. They beheld the glorified Jesus. This was mountaintop experience for them. GPS waypoint. You know, put the marker down, plant the flagpole. They beheld Jesus' glory, and it was to help them put the puzzle together as they saw Jesus die and be crucified in Jerusalem and put in a tomb. Once he, once he was raised from the dead, the dots, I would say, connected for them and the picture came together and they realized that he had been telling, him, telling them these things all along. Do you remember those, you know, those connect the dot pictures when you're a kid? I love those things. I think I still like to, you know, See where it will happen when you follow the number patterns. You know, the, the page typically on one of those connect the dot pictures has this illustration that somewhere in there, 
And it, it, it's almost like giving you a hint. You don't know what the illustration is, and so you follow. Number one, two, three, four, five, and you make your way around with your pencil, and you connect all the dots. And as you draw, draw a line, the, the picture takes shape, and it comes together. And the illustration that you saw there in the first place that you weren't quite sure what it was usually is something totally significant to the picture. Who's kidding who? Everybody loves connect the dots. And the disciples, Jesus says, you're to be quiet until the dots connect. They couldn't comprehend everything that they were seeing on the mountaintop. And Jesus did not want them to share an obscure illustration that they did not, or an obscure experience that they did not yet understand until he had connected all of the dots for them. The cross, his death, the resurrection. And the final dot in the picture was the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Then everything would make sense. Then the transfiguration would make sense. And so we read here, they begin to try and connect the dots, actually. Look at verse 10. The disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? We know this. The Old Testament wraps up with this prophecy that, that Elijah would come. Malachi, it's the prophet Malachi prophesied the very last words of the Old Testament prophesied that Elijah would come. And when, when Malachi prophesied those words, the nation of Israel entered a period of 400 years of silence until John the Baptist appeared on the scene. God didn't speak to them over those years through a prophet. And Malachi prophesied this in Malachi 4, verse 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now all Israel, every little Jewish child, every boy, every girl had been raised with this expectation that before the coming of the Lord would happen, Elijah would appear on the scene. Peter, James, and John had seen Elijah on the mountaintop, they had seen him there with Jesus. And so they asked a good question because they were trying to figure out how's the prophecy going to be fulfilled. You know, it's almost like they're asking or saying, well, shouldn't we tell people about the fact that Elijah was here? Like, if, if you're coming and you're going to come into your kingdom, shouldn't we be declaring? You want us to keep silent though? And so we read in verse 11 that Jesus said this, Elijah does come. And he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. They did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. And so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Verse 13, Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Jesus plainly declared, Elijah will come. He will restore all things. I, I, as I read this, to me, I don't know about you, but there's like a, a sense where this is fulfilled and it's not yet ultimately fulfilled. And that's how I really think Jesus is answering the question. That Elijah will come and he will restore all things prior to the ultimate coming of the kingdom of heaven at the day of the Lord when Jesus returns. But he also seems to make, a, a, well, I mean, we read this in the story, we get this sense that 
the nation of Israel was not ready for him to come. John the Baptist came in the spirit and in the power of Elijah, and they rejected him, and they murdered him. I guess you might say if they had received him. Yes, he was Elijah. And so Jesus answers the disciples' question in kind of a twofold way. Already come and not yet come, Elijah. Fulfilled but not completely. And so the question is still, I guess in a sense, when will Elijah come and the prophecy of Malachi be fulfilled? And some people point us to uh, Revelation chapter 11 and the two witnesses and their ministry that is described in Revelation 11. And they say, one of those witnesses is Elijah and one of those witnesses is Moses, who they'll appear on the scene again before the day of the Lord and uh, proclaim the coming of the kingdom. And so, as we see here in this story, the, the disciples were not clear on everything. The, the dots had not all yet connected. The dots hadn't connected in the experience on the mountaintop where Jesus was transfigured. And so I think, you know, here's the thing. Here's the thing that we have to understand about the transfiguration. Is that ultimately, this story deals with the relationship between glory and human experience between being the light of the world and, and clothed in the righteousness of Jesus and ref- having the glory of God come through our lives and, and the experience of everyday life and suffering. And we talked about last week the idea that glory is our identity. Romans chapter 8, glory is our identity between, before the Father. Glory is our identity because we have put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is glorified, we too will be glorified, just like he was transfigured. But glory is not going to be our reality and experience until forever we're with Jesus. And so in the meantime, it's life in the valley, isn't it? Maybe you maybe experienced life in the valley this week. Suffering. You know, death, I think about little Isabella Dooley. That's life in the valley. That's like the worst part of human experience. Taxes. Carbon tax. It's life in the valley. There'll always be these things. And the hope of glory for us is to make sense As we see this, Jesus coming down the mountain and saying, I'm going to enter your experience. I'm going to enter into your humanity. I'm going to enter into your suffering. I'm going to enter into your experience of death through the cross. I'm going to even enter into human taxes. And so the first experience as they come down the mountain is is fitting. Let's check it out in verse 14. When they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into water and I brought him to your disciples that they, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, well, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. 
And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him. And the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. The glory of the king is seen in this healing with a boy of seizures. You might have been a young man. We actually don't know. Um, your Bible might say that he suffered from epilepsy. That's what mine actually says. ESV's just made an update to that, actually, uh, just, just this year, changing it to seizures. If you've got a King James Version, it'll tell you that he was a lunatic, which is... Which is uh, an ancient way for saying that he was moonstruck. What they're saying is, is what he was experiencing was, was seemed to be associated with the lunar cycle, which is interesting. I remember uh, growing up, my grandpa was a cop, and I remember telling me when I was a kid, when I was a kid that on full moons, you know, it's extra staff because the world just gets a little, things get a little crazy sometimes on the full moon. Whatever, whatever's going on here, here we have this father coming before the king of glory, he gets down on his knees and he begins to beg for mercy. The other gospels tell us that this was his one and only son. It's an interesting picture. His only begotten. The father's only begotten son, suffering. And whatever the kid's issue and exactly how it all worked, we know this and what we read here is that it was demonic in nature. The demon spirit would make attempts on on this boy's life, trying to take his life. He would, he would have a seizure and he would fall into a fire. Why not fall away from the fire? You know, he would have a seizure and he would fall into the water. Why not fall towards the shore? No, the, this was a murderous spirit that was trying to take the boy's life and was tormenting the boy's family. And so while Jesus is up on the mountain, he's got Peter, James, and John with him. This whole experience is going on down in the valley. This boy with his father, their family, the disciples. There's nine disciples there, but they could not heal the boy. And so at the begging of the father, Jesus says this in verse 17, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. You know, as I, as I read verse 17 there, as you read it, I think that we can think that Jesus spoke with frustration, that he spoke with anger. But I actually believe that this is not the voice of anger when Jesus says, faithless, twisted generation, how long will I bear with you? How long am I going to be with you? It was not the voice of anger. Do you know that the scripture tells us that God's thoughts for us outnumber the sands of the sea? He sees all things. He knows all things. We say this about the Lord who is like God in all the earth. And there are many who want to paint God in anger. We know this about God. God is holy. Do you know what that means when we say that God is holy? It means that he is set apart from his creation. He is set apart from his creation and we have to gain this 
knowledge of God, we have to gain this knowledge of the Son and open up our heart to this truth that, that God is not angry, but in his thoughts towards us, in his holiness, he is compassionate to the fact that we are living life in the valley and he wants to take us out of and experience the reality of his glory, his presence. And so when Jesus speaks of this generation as being faithless, as it being twisted, he's speaking with compassion, with sympathy, with a tender heart of love and mercy, speaking with warmth, with care, longing that a generation would believe in him and just by faith lay hold of the things of the kingdom. Longing that in the midst of the suffering, we would look with eyes of faith and say, Jesus, I don't understand everything that's going on here, but I am making a choice. I'm going to put my faith in you and I'm going to trust you. You're going to bring me into glory. I'm going to set my trust on your promises. I'm going to fix my heart and my thoughts on the things that you've said to me and the things you have promised to me. And and Jesus, as he, he speaks of the lack of faith and the way that the generation is, is, is twisted and unbelieving, he says, bring, bring him here to me. Bring the boy to me. And, and I just think about Jesus. What kind of love is this? You know, if it's me, it's like, you idiot. No, what love is this of Jesus? Jesus is fighting for our hearts even when we've let go of gripping onto him. His scripture says, you you can't be snatched out of my hand. You're you're in the palm of my hand. And he's fighting for our hearts. Wanting to rescue us. Deliver us. You know, you think about your life before Jesus. I think about my life before Jesus. Dead in my sin. Struggling. And then he came and he brought us into the fold of God's family. into his pasture, our good shepherd. He gave us a new chance. We began to live again. The scripture says we began to respond to him in love because he first loved us. You know, even thinking about us singing this morning, you know that the word of God actually teaches that we sing to him because he first sang to us. Zephaniah said, God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save and he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love and he will exalt over you with loud singing. You know, in in that sense, our, our voices should be loud in our worship to God because God is singing loudly over you. See, Jesus is the strength of our lives. And as I consider this story, the, the question I I hear the Spirit asking is this, what's it going to take for you to trust me? What's it going to take for you to just fully put your faith in me? I mean, think about Jesus. Think about the nature of Jesus, faithful from the start. You know, a perfect friend. He he has no end. He has a whole of our lives and he's not going to let go. Like, what else is going to satisfy See, we're held by a love that, I guess in a sense, carries us. We're firm in the grip of, held firm in the grip of Jesus. And yet, 
I am counted, you are counted amongst the generation that is called faithless and twisted. A generation that, that so often fails to trust him with their lives. You know, often I think about us putting our faith in Jesus and this idea that we, we trust him with salvation. We trust him with the eternal destiny of our souls. Why could we not trust him for the rest of our lives as well with everything else? Everything else. I mean, if we're going to trust him for something as great as our eternal destiny, I think we could trust him for something as small as our children or our finances or our suffering or our... We can trust him for everything. And so the solution is the solution Jesus gives to this man who is begging for God to meet him. He says, bring him to me. Bring it to me. Whatever that is, you know, I would say to you this morning, whatever it is, whatever that thing is that's going on in your life, bring it to Jesus like this father brought his son to Jesus. And it says in verse 18, Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. The problem of the disciples was the smallness of their faith. A mustard seed's pretty little. To me, that sounds like little faith. Theirs was smaller than a mustard seed. Smaller than that. And I think, well, what is faith then? What is, what is faith all about? Faith is this. Faith is the level of our trust and confidence in God. In Hebrews, we read that, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. Saying, God, in the midst of things I cannot see, I have a conviction about who you are. I have a conviction about uh, your character and your nature towards me. I have a conviction about the promises of God and the things that you've said. Though I cannot see, I'm going to choose to see what you have said and believe in you. And the disciples, the nine down, down in the valley, you know, life's pretty good when you're up on top of the mountain, isn't it? But when you're down in the valley, your memory starts to get a little bit short sometimes. That's why you need flagpole, stakes, GPS marker points. The disciples had forgotten while Jesus wasn't there with them and up on top of the mountain with the other three, the nine down in the valley had, had forgotten their dependence upon God. Whatever the source was that of that, well, we don't know. We get some little hints maybe from some of the from some of the other gospel accounts, Matthew doesn't tell us. Uh, um, but the other gospels tell us that Jesus told them, you're, ne you're neglecting prayer and fasting. Um, maybe they were just sulking because they were down in the valley and they didn't get to go up top. Whatever the factors were, the, these nine disciples had forgotten their dependence upon God. And we're no different. You and me. 
We're of that faithless and twisted generation, a, a generation that forgets this isn't home. This is not my home. A generation that forgets that we belong to another kingdom, that our identity is sourced in, in God. We forget that we, are, we have been made to be in the presence of God, that our, our lives are to be a temple for the Holy Spirit, that we are made for relationship with God, and we forget that, yeah, that our lives are that, that space for God's presence. This is not our home. Church, this is not our home. This is only temporarily, temporary. But you know what's not temporary? Jesus. Jesus will never fade away. His word will never fall to the ground. His promises will never fail. And we have to make our lives the place for his word, our, our lives, that temple of the Holy Spirit, a space for his presence to work and for faith to be birthed. You know, I think about my house down here in Gibson's. I love my house. Family loves, there's something cozy about home, you know, this time of year, stoking the fire in there and getting the house warm. But as much as I love that home, I'll tell you, the, the truth is this. I will never be home until it's face-to-face -face with Jesus. You will never be home until you are face-to-face -face in his presence. And until that time, the practice, what we must learn in the midst of the valley and the suffering and the death and the taxes is that we are to lay hold of hope by faith. See, you and I, we were made for Jesus, friends. We were made for Jesus. And until we comprehend that truth and lay hold of that truth, or when we comprehend that truth and lay hold of it, Jesus says, if, if you can grasp that and have faith like a mustard seed, you'll move mountains. What mountain are you facing? What is the obstacle that is hindering your faith right now, that, that is weighing over you. You know, in many ways, the, the greatest mountain that we'll ever face, face is death. Can't help but think of Peter and Rebecca this morning. And Jesus, our good shepherd, even says, I'll, I'll meet you in the valley of the shadow of death. I'll meet you there. In his humanity, he, he even went there himself. He, he told his disciples that he would be murdered at the hands of men and he would be raised from the dead. Look at verse 22. He's beginning to communicate this. As we've been seeing in Matthew, he's going to just keep emphasizing this more and more so that they will know what happens before it happens. He says, they were gathering in Galilee and Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day and they were greatly distressed. You know, I read those words of Jesus and I think, like, it couldn't really be more plain. He's like totally laying out the game plan here in the connect the dots. When we get to step, whatever, this is what's gonna happen. I'll be killed and I'll be raised from the dead on the third day. But for the disciples, 
It's not all yet connecting. It says, he says here that they, they were grieved. I mean, naturally, they were distressed at this word. It's like their, their ears stopped up and they never heard the word resurrection because all they heard was death. I'll be killed. They, all they heard was that he would be killed and, and mustard seed faith was not present in their lives as they stood before the mountain of death. If faith was present, they would have said, yes, you're going to die, but there's going to be a resurrection from the dead. You know, in faith this morning, we can say little Isabella Dooley is going to be raised from the dead. She's going to experience the resurrection of the dead. One day, King Jesus, he's going to set everything right. He's going to set everything right and the day of his appearing, you know, the Bible tells us the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will be raised imperishable. We'll be changed. Death will be swallowed up in victory. You know, it takes faith to connect those dots. It takes faith to trust God for those promises that he has given. You know, I'm reminded of what we read about Abraham. By faith, when he was called to go to a place that he was to receive a promised land, an inheritance, he went out. He didn't know where he was even going. But by faith, he went out to live in the land of promise and he was looking, the Bible tells us, for a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. In faith, he was obedient to God's word to him. In faith, he chose, I'm going to look forward to what God is going to do for me according to what he has promised. We read about Sarah that by faith, she received power to conceive even when she was past the age because she considered him faithful who had given her the promise. The Bible says that Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. See, faith considers God faithful to his promises. It says, God, I believe God because he's going to do what he said he's going to do. And again, as I consider this text, I just have to ask, like, what are you facing today? What mountains before you? And the question is, will you choose to look to the king? Will you lift up your eyes? You know, the truth is this for us who are in Christ. The storm can rage all around. It can rage. But your feet are on solid ground when you're standing on Jesus Christ. When he's the foundation of your life. Jesus is with you in the valley. We read this in verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take their toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And he said, and when he said from others, Jesus said to him, 
then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. I, I think because Matthew was a tax collector, he had specific interest in this story. It's the only gospel that tells this account. It's kind of a neat story. Um, this tax was a tax that was specific to the Jews. Uh, this was not a Roman tax. This was a temple tax that was collected. The Romans allowed it to happen and to continue happening while they were in power. And this two drachma tax was collected annually. They would go throughout Israel. They would collect the tax. And then it was taken to the temple and it was to help with the operating costs of the temple. Uh, help with the operating costs of the house of God. And so the, this tax comes around. The tax collector comes around. And he runs to Peter and he asks this question. Does your master, does he pay the tax? And, and I think, you know, uh, well, Jesus isn't present for the question. We, we get that sense as we read this. He's not there. And so Peter's kind of backed into a corner here. I really think that it was more of an accusation than a question. And so Peter blurts out an answer because that's what Peter does. <laughs> sure, he pays it. Yeah, he, he, he pays it. And then he goes and he makes his way indoors. And before Peter can say a word as he comes into the house, Jesus asks him this question. What do you think, Simon? From whom did the kings of the earth take their toll or tax, from their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Then the sons are free. Now, because the temple is the house of God, Peter's been learning something that Jesus is God's son. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. It's like Jesus saying, should I be taxed? Should I be taxed if I'm the, I'm the son? But it's really, there's really more to it here than that even because he, he, he says this, then the sons, plural, are free. Peter's, uh, Jesus teaching Peter something about his own identity in Christ. Should we be taxed if I am the king and if you are my child? Should we be taxed? And this is not just about Jesus being the son of God. It's also about Peter being a son of the kingdom, a child of the king. And so interesting that, that Peter, rec Peter recognizes, no, you don't, you don't tax your own son. But Jesus says this, even, even though I'm exempt, I'm going to work a miracle rather than offend the tax collector. Actually, that word offend can be translated stumbling stone, which we've seen, right? Peter stumbling stone, rather than be a stumbling stone, rather than give offense, I'll work a miracle. Now, don't you wish you could come up with your tax money this way? <laughs> I mean, you got to read the story and think, wow, sweet, man, that's, that would be all right. You know, this is the only time in the gospels that we, that we read that they went fishing like this, hook and pole. You know, I was thinking, Josh isn't here this morning, but I was thinking about Josh. We went to uh, church camp this summer. We were out at uh, West Resort there, and we had our boats and went out fishing. And uh, Josh is a commercial fisherman. Josh knows how to fish with a net and, you know, can lay a string and put traps down. And I don't know, he's got all sorts of cool toys when I go out on his boat and these different things. But, um, you know, when it, when it came to... Uh, 
sport fishing, he was, he was out of his element, which we were kind of laughing about. We're out on the boat. I'm like, well, you're the commercial fisherman. Aren't you supposed to know what we're doing? He's like, well, I don't sport fish. Don't you sport fish? You're supposed to know what we're doing. We didn't catch any fish, as you can tell. And uh, so we were laughing about it. But it's interesting that what, is, what does Peter know? Peter knows commercial fishing. Peter knows how to cast a net. And so Jesus takes Peter out of his comfort zone to demonstrate his power over the situation, his power to supply, his power to provide, his power over all of creation. Jesus knew the conversation. I mean, you think about it. Jesus knew the conversation that happened outside the house between Peter and the tax collector before Peter even came back in to the house. You know, I think about this story, you just... Sometimes we just read it for what it is, but we don't think about all the things that have to happen. Like somebody lost a coin that was worth at least four drachmas into the Sea of Galilee. And some stupid fish came along and gulped it up. And Jesus knew that fish was swimming around in the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus, uh, by his uh, sovereign power, led that fish right to Peter's hook so that Peter could take the first fish that he got. He was probably there for a while because he didn't know what he was doing. And when he hooked one in, reeled it in, there it was. The fish had swallowed up that coin and Peter took it and he, and he paid the taxes. And, and I, you know, sometimes you, you wonder what happened behind the background here. Did Peter like say, hey guys, come on, let's go. Whole town of Capernaum, let's go down to the seaside. Jesus said, I'm going to do this and first fish I yank is going to be a coin in its mouth. We don't know if there are other people there. If Peter like said to the tax collector, come with me so that you see this. We don't know what all happened, but the point is this, the point of this whole text, the the suffering, the the story of Jesus' death, this account of the taxes being paid is this, is that, Where there is suffering, where there is death, where there are taxes, even carbon tax, where there are taxes, Jesus is present. Jesus is in control. And Jesus is inviting us to follow him and to walk with him in that life of faith. And the question for me as I consider this this text is this, is will you cast your cares upon him in the valley of human experience? Will you rise from the valley of humanity and ascend the hill of the Lord? Will you rise from the valley of living and lay hold of the promises of God? Will you live like one who has been rescued? (laughs) 